You're listening to Our Best Interest. Jack, it's been a little bit of time since we recorded this episode. Yeah, you've been busy, Michael. I love it. I've been busy uh, for good reasons. I've had to put the show on the back burner, but I was finally able to get back to editing one of the um, shows that we recorded back in December, I believe. Maybe it was January. Um, And it, it was a very fun and interesting interview with Pamela Caranova the founder uh, of Adoptees Connect, and a newer venture, Authenticity Over Alcohol. Things have changed in that time. I'm sure that Pamela's new venture has moved along, and it's already probably time to check in with her and see how that's going. But also, um, I understand that Pamela's birth father died. And since we had discussed him on this episode, I wanted to acknowledge his passing and offer our condolences as we know very well here, um, grief for parents is particularly uh, yes. difficult to get through. Yeah. So I just wanted to publicly say, uh, we hope that you're doing well, Pamela, and we're yes. sorry to hear of your loss. Yeah. All right, Jack, without uh, further ado, let's turn over to the recording. Um, again, this was back in December. And our guest is Pamela Caranova. Let's let it roll. Jack, I'm excited to have Pamela Caranova with us today. Welcome, Pamela. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. I'm connected to Pamela through Adoptees Connect. She runs, she's founded and run this fantastic organization where adult adoptees uh, meet up in real live person-to-person contact. And uh, of course, because of COVID, we've been meeting more with Zoom, but we're trying to phase that out if we can and get back to in-person adoptees hanging out together. And it's a wonderful thing. Pamela, thank you so much for creating the organization and allowing me to be a part of it. And welcome to Our Best Interests. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here and to create that awesome resource. And thank you for being a part of it. Uh, I thought we have like three things to talk about, right? We, we'd like to get uh, to, to know Pamela a little bit more, uh, to understand her backstory a bit, her journey through adoption and where she is today, to where she is today. And uh, But also maybe we could get her to give us some of the origin story of Adoptees Connect. And now she's uh, involved with an exciting new initiative that she calls uh, Authenticity Over Alcohol, which, um, of course, has relevance to adoptees, but also beyond adoptees to other people who have struggled with substance abuse disorders. And Pamela, maybe you could start us off with going back to the beginning. You don't have to give us all the details if we can find them elsewhere, but um, can you give us the broad strokes of your adoption story? What? Yes, sir. Well, I'll start with um, being born and raised in Iowa, country girl at heart. Um, my adopted parents married. They adopted a daughter and then they adopted me 11 months later from two separate families. So um, originally I started out in this adoptive home, but then they divorced when they were, well, they were married a year. I was a year when they divorced and 
my adopted dad moved away, remarried, and um, I stayed with my adopted mom and my sister. Um, there were a lot of challenges growing up in the childhood uh, that I remember in the home with my adopted mom. She was very mentally ill, and um, we didn't have a close bond or a close relationship. Um, I would say her mental illness stood in the way of that happening. I think it is maybe possible, <laughs> but I didn't get to experience that. Um, I would go see my adopted dad on the weekends um, and for holidays. And um, I experienced joy there as far as being out in nature, being able to connect with nature. I think that's part of where my love for nature comes. I think that was actually one of the safest places I ever was able to go as a child is to be out in nature. So I still actually have reconnected with nature now and find great solace and solitude um, in that. Um, I found out I was adopted at five years old, um, which is a similar story to a lot of adoptees. It's kind of like I always knew. Um, I started asking questions about my birth mother and was given the same lines a lot of us are. Um, She loved you so much that she wanted you to have a happier life. And so she gave gave you to me to raise and you're my greatest gift in the world because of her sacrifice. I was able to be a parent is what my adopted mother said. And I immediately was confused as a five-year-old little girl, immediately fantasizing about this woman. Where is she? Who is she? What does she look like? Um, And I've described before how um, the adoptees that have like a one to 10 issue, one being the littlest and 10 being the most, I'm all the way off the scale at like 10 million. So I was definitely very, very, very focused on finding her from a very young age. I even ran away at like five years old. After I found out I was at an aunt's house and I just remember taking off walking down the street thinking that if the police find me, they're going to take me back to my right mom. And somehow (laughs) I end up back at my aunt's house, but um but anyway i was i was definitely obsessed with her to escalate the the story a little further um i had fantasized she was coming back to get me she never came back to get me um i want to say around 11 or 12 i started getting really angry and i started acting out as a teenager um seeing therapists off and on my whole life adoption was never talked about um we talked about everything else but adoption probably the biggest issue of all time was never brought to the table. Um, and I, I immediately at probably 12, I discovered alcohol. Um, I started running away. Um, I was in and out of group homes, detention, uh, stealing cars, um, in juvenile lockup, ended up in drug and alcohol treatment at 15. Um, that, that experience is definitely a piece of my story that's formed me into the person I am today being put in treatment at 15, because back then (laughs) they handed me the big book and told me that I had to find God. And that's basically going to fix everything. Um, And I I remember sitting in that room, reading the first few pages. And basically all I got from any of it is that I had to find God. And then I was going to get the hell out of here. (laughs) I was Mm -hmm. like, Oh, so that's how I get out of here. First of all, I was locked in there. I didn't want to be in there anyway. So they should have known that was never going to work. Um, <laughs> uh, people have to want to get help for them to actually be able to. Right. Get help. So they, they basically gave you a roadmap to tell them what they wanted to hear. And yes. And so I flipped the switch and I'm like, oh, okay. Well, I found God and, <laughs> and I got out and went and got, got 
drunk immediately afterwards and probably high too. Um, so anyway, that, that experience though, I remember everybody attaching the label of being an alcoholic to their names. And as a 15 year old, I was like, even way back then I was so stubborn that I was like, I am not labeling myself an alcoholic. Like I just always had a problem with it. So I spend, you know, however many years, um, actually 27 years to be exact, drinking alcohol, escaping from the reality. And what the reality was for me is that I ended up finding my birth mother and my birth father over about a 15 year period of time. I, um, had asked about my birth mother my whole life, um, wanting to know who she was uh, to my adopted mother. And she fed me the same story all the time. When we get enough money for an attorney, we will get the sealed records open. But right now we don't have enough money for an attorney. And as I mentioned before, we didn't even have a car. We were on food stamps. We were on income-based housing. We right. were never going to get enough money for an attorney, yeah. but that soothed my soul enough that I swear to you, I heard that hundreds of times in my life. Um, it was like this reoccurring because I was never going to shut up about finding my birth mother. <laughs> I know they wanted me to, but I right. never did. Yeah, you were you were more persistent than I was. I was. I was yeah. ready to literally kill people. I was like ready to just go crazy. I did go crazy internally. I was completely losing my mind. Um, and I describe it as an internal torture, like an inhumane torture that I experienced every day of my life, looking for this woman, not knowing where she was or who she was or what she looked like or anything. So, um, all of a sudden when I turned 21, I had a one-year-old daughter and I asked my adopted mom probably the 3,532 time and, uh, 30 some years or well, 21 years at that time. Um, I really want to find my birth mother. Do you know anything about her? I can promise you, I have raided cabinets, cupboards, boxes, every single space that there could be that I could find any clue, any piece of paper, any adoption documents of that, that would be around. I would have found them. Uh, you I just was... brought a memory back for me. I remember <laughs> rifling through my father's top drawer because that's yes. where the important stuff was, not knowing what I was looking for, but I knew that there were there were things out there that I should know and mm -hmm. they might be keeping from me. There was nowhere. And I remember looking over and over. I would look in the same place. Like, I know it wasn't there, but I'm going to look again and just make sure I didn't miss it last time. Um, and I was like, stop this. She had this big filing cabinet. And I'm like, this is where all the files are. This is where all the important papers are. Why can't I find any papers? Anyway, um, turn 21, I asked her again. And all of a sudden, oh, well, I need to tell you something. Um, when your dad and I were going to adopt you, um, we were given the wrong paperwork. And we saw your birth mother's name and the street she lived on. And if you call your dad right now, he'll probably remember it. And I have shared a little bit about how those emotions took over me that, well, you've lied to me my whole life just to satisfy your own soul. And I was really, really angry. And I just immediately felt that I couldn't trust her. I'd never trusted her again. And I never, never would trust her again. But I called my adopted dad and he gave me the name and he gave me the street that she lived on because he remembered both of those things. That's kind of amazing, um, isn't it? That uh, so many years later, I mean, he had this paper in his hand for a moment, presumably, not mm -hmm. very long, right? It didn't take right. long. And, Enough to see. And, but to remember that. And mm -hmm. yeah, that was obviously something he took note of.
Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think now as mad as I have been and as disconnected as I've been from my adopted mom and really my adopted dad too, because I don't have relationships with either of them. um, I appreciate the fact that she told me that day um, because she really never had to. She never had to. And um, I told her thank you a few times before we kind of separated for my mental health reasons. But um, but anyway, I always wonder what my life would have been like if they didn't tell me that they knew that when I was 21, because I I can honestly tell you, I would probably not be here in front of you. I'm pretty sure I would have committed suicide because I tried several times and it didn't work. And I that's how big my agony was. Um, yeah, me too. Was that. Yeah, it was just unbearable. It was unbearable and there was no solace or anything anywhere to help me. Do you have any bond with your your other sibling? Did she share in those feelings of of searching or were this was this was your you were the rebel on that on that case? You know what's interesting is that with my adoptive mom being very mentally ill, um she was uh narcissistic, manic depressive, um disassociative. She was uh, like depressed every single day. And she would create triangulation tactics against me and my adopted sister. And we would fight all the time, every day. Like the household was very chaotic where she would talk about her behind she would talk about me behind my back to her and she would do the same thing to both of us where it just created we would physically fight um in the house all of us um and I never had a close relationship with her and I say only because my adopted mom was always in the middle spinning 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 all the drama and we never had a chance to be sisters and what's crazy is We've never even talked about adoption. She's from a separate family. I've heard it through the grapevine that she found her birth family, um, but I've never heard it from her. I even saw her in Salt Lake City two years ago, and we sat in the same room and never once spoke about adoption, being adopted. She has a very different outlook than I do. She does not, she has not gone through the healing process like I have and stepped into a place of truth about the realities of what's happened. And I mean, for me, obviously I had to stop drinking alcohol to do that, but um, it's really, really weird. But I've heard quite a few adoptees say that, 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 that it's like, there's this really weird disconnect from their adopted siblings and them, and they never talk about it. Yeah. And we, we've not had in 47 years for me, and she's, I think, 48. We don't, we're separated. We don't have a relationship either. I've like kind of had to disassociate myself from everyone for my own mental health. Um, and first, th- there's a lot of dynamics to that where um, she doesn't view my adopted mom the way that I do, um, which is okay. She doesn't have to, but she doesn't respect that I had to disassociate and disconnect from her for my mental health and for my recovery. Um, I tried to set boundaries, it didn't work. Um, and so when I stopped alcohol, I had to get real. And I was like, this lady is the biggest trigger that I have. And if she wants to stay around, these are a few things that I need her to do. Put your pills away. Please get out of bed before noon. Please don't cry in front of my kids. Please act like you're healthy. Act like a happy, healthy grandma. Even if you're not, can you just pretend while you're here for four days at my house? And she couldn't 
do any of that. And so I, I had to say, you know, you're not welcome to come back here anymore. Um, and my adoptive sister doesn't have that view. Um, she ended up moving away when we were young and she went through a lot of trauma too. You know, she just hasn't dealt with it. So I don't know if that answered your question about my sister and I, we literally never had one conversation about it. In our yeah, whole I think lives. that's common. So, so there was only one other sibling that you grew up with one sister. I had three stepbrothers. So when my adopted dad divorced my adopted mom, he married, um, a woman that had three sons. And so I grew up around three stepbrothers too, when I would go visit them on the weekends. So, okay. Mm -hmm. And so you at 21 years of age, or I think you said 21, get the name of your birth mother. Now, what is the process that you go through starting at that moment? Because you're persistent. So yeah. do you pick up the phone at the time? I guess it was the yellow pages. What, what do you do? It was the yellow and the, pages and the white pages, I guess. <laughs> yeah. 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 I actually, I was on the phone with her within 24 hours. I ended up contacting the Waterloo, Iowa public library because I had known they keep the directories on file for a really long time. And the lady was nice enough to help me over the phone because I was like an hour away from that, that where I grew up or where I was born. I mean, it was an hour away from where I grew up. So she looked in the directory and she found like two or three different names in the 1974 directory. And she gave me the names and the numbers. So then by the time, you know, I'm contacting her 21 years later, um, one of the numbers reached a live person. And it was my birth mother's sister-in-law through the Wick marriage. Wow. Uh-huh. And she's like, I just told her who I was. And I'm like, I'm looking for my biological mother. I was born this day. And she's like, oh, wow. She's like, we knew there was something, but we mm -hmm. weren't 100% sure. Um, so, yeah, she gave me my birth mother's number. And I called her and I said, my name's Pam. I was born August 13th, 1974. Um, at St. Francis Hospital, are you the woman I'm looking for? And I just got a click. I'm like, oh yeah, well, that's not gonna work for me because you love me so much, right? That had to be an accident that you just hung up on me. So I call back and said, I, I just said, when she said, hello, I just said, I don't want anything from you. I don't need anything from you. I would just really love to get to know you a little bit. And she said, I am the woman you're looking for. And she, basically said she had thought about me every year on my birthday. Um, she has another daughter that's four years older than me that doesn't know anything about me. Um, my birth father didn't know anything about me and he wouldn't want to know because I asked her who's my birth father. He didn't know anything about you and he wouldn't want to know. Um, and we talked for about 10 minutes. She agreed to send me a picture of her because for me, it was really important that I see her face. Um, she was in Iowa. I was in Kentucky. So I couldn't just ride up and see her walking in and out of her job, you know, or anything like that. So we agreed that I would send her some pictures. She would send me some pictures. And I sent the pictures like immediately. And I waited and waited and waited. And she never sent me the pictures and she never wrote me back. And I want to say, you know, a month turns into two months to three months and I'm stalking the mailman, just dying to see these pictures of what she looks like. And she never wrote me. She never sent me pictures. I just really hung on to the hope that I would get to see her handwriting 
and to hear some heartfelt words from her, if she had any, like who doesn't have any. Um, so, you know, when you're told that they love you so much and this happy, bubbly, fluffy, um, description of everything, then you think that everything's happy, bubbly. I fantasize she was a movie star from California and she lived on a house uh, in a house on a hill with a white picket fence and a husband and another child. And all they were waiting on was me. I was the only thing missing. And she was coming back to get me. That's a pretty developed fantasy. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting. We all have those, uh, you know, when you, anytime I hear an adoptee story, I, I put my, you know, you can put yourself yeah. into that story with slightly different twists and, you know, it's amazing. And it, it's, it's more the once you become so convinced of that story that it's real, mm-hmm. that it's more the disruption of the story yeah. that, you know, just sends your mind into a whirlspin. Now you've got to, you know, redevelop this entire story. And it's, it's, it's impossible to erase that thing that you believe is real for so long. It's so true. And that story, um, I can honestly say that the fantasies not being true were some of the biggest disappointments of my whole life ever. I mean, for her to love me so much. And then I, I, I try to find her and she basically is rejecting me. She did not ever want to see me. She did not want to meet me. She wanted nothing to do with me. And I ended up finding my sister because my birth mother was literally rejecting me. And I was like, well, on to the next one, because <laughs> I bet I'm finding all my people, at least uh, in this lifetime. Um, and I started for a search for my sister and I ended up getting her address, wrote her a letter within a couple of days. She got the letter and she called me. We end up meeting. Um, And it was a good reunion, but as we got to know each other, I learned that she also gave a baby up for adoption, like my birth mother did. Um, And she she cannot handle my views on adoption, actually my truth, um, because it hits her in a place that I don't think she's ever entered into regarding surrendering her son for adoption. Um, And we've kind of clashed over the, over the years, but we did get to meet originally. She set it up for me to meet my birth mother one time. Um, I met her. It was an interesting meet. We hung out for probably two hours. Um, and I once again asked her who my birth father was and she wouldn't tell me. Um, she asked me how my life was. And I told her the truth that I didn't bond with my adopted mother. My adopted parents divorced when I was one, I was, raised in a sexually abusive home with my three stepbrothers. And I was emotionally and mentally abused in the home with my adopted mother. Um, And I was told later after I left that day, I, I didn't know how to filter the truth. I couldn't pull some fantasy out and say, yeah, my adopted life is great. Oh yeah. I haven't been in group homes and um, running around uh, as a, teenage runaway and you know all of these things that happened I just didn't know how to to do that softly yeah. like to share that with her and apparently it was just too much for her um, it's, it's a little it's a weird expectation that you're going to have some kind of small talk in mm-hmm. this reunion because you know everything is very tender and I could imagine that you're sitting there you know you've been through this 
uh, well, your entire life of the the struggle, right? And and the longing, and then uh, you, you want to talk about it, you want to be honest, but that's not the conversation that the other side often wants to have. Mm-hmm. I think recently we've had some discussions with my with my adoptive mother, or I'm sorry, with my birth mother, that um, there were issues. And, you know, as long as I was saying, yeah, I had a wonderful life, I had a great life, great family, as long as you're on that narrative, um, everybody's happy with that. Mm-hmm. And, and same with the adoptive parents, you know, and, and same with my sister or same with my cousins. Anytime, you know, you talk about, yeah, we had a great life and we did. But if you introduce any little any glitch in the history Suddenly it's, there's this, okay, I got to go. It's getting late. You know what I mean? Well, you, you at least you turned out okay. You know, yeah. no one wants, <laughs> I mean, and I, I guess maybe I'm guilty of that, that, you know, that toxic positivity, if you will, that, you know, as long as someone's, you know, oh, how, you know, how are you doing? Oh, I'm great. I'm great. But you're like, okay, you know, um, well, at least this, and but no one wants to do that. It's no one. No one wants to do that. It, yeah. They want to maintain the fantasy of mm-hmm. you know the happily ever after. Everything works out just fine. You know, as long as we don't say anything other, they get mm-hmm. to think that. You know, you're mm-hmm. going to be you know given to a better family. They're going to raise you in a better manner. You're going to have a, this great life. So you know, they take that history and just okay, great. Let's just assume that that's what happened. No one wants to hear it. They sure don't. And I think being the ripe old age of 21, I know like there was nobody counseling me or helping me through this journey of reunion. So I didn't realize like you probably shouldn't tell her all that the first time you meet her, like maybe wait a while. (laughs) I was not seasoned at all in what I should say or what I shouldn't. All I knew is telling the truth cost me the relationship with my birth mother because when I left that day she shut the door put a hundred locks on it and I never heard from her or saw her again and um 15 to 20 20 years in at that time when you were 21 um you know we don't we didn't have the internet like we do today so did you know any other adopt have you ever talked to another adoptee and you know, talked about the possibility of the difficulty that was inherent in the situation, or were you just completely winging it on your own? I was completely handling the whole situation on my own. There was nobody that could relate. I didn't, I didn't even have my voice yet. um, Other than acting out, that was my voice. My voice was all of the harm that I was doing really to myself And I think I mentioned before that the the dark places that I was in in my teenage years um, were so dark that I just wanted to die. And it wasn't enough that I was trying to take myself out, but I was provoking other people to kill me too. And that's, I've wrestled with that as a grown person that's 47 years old, making sense of my childhood and my juvenile years and how big my pain was. Um, and then when I, I got that, you know, I leave my birth mother's house and, and naive, I have this hope that this is the beginning of a relationship. Like she saw me, she met me, she loves me so much. (laughs) And I never would believe still never believe that she was rejecting me until I got a call that she was dead. She had passed away. And then 
something settled in me where it was like, okay, well, she died and the hope that she would change her mind died with her. And in a really weird way, it brought me peace because I knew there that she wasn't coming. Like it was like, like the dust had settled and the agony that I had always felt wishing she would change her mind about me and wishing that I would go to the mailbox one day and there just all of a sudden be a letter, you know, 20 years later um, was still torture, even after meeting her and wishing she would change her mind was very traumatic. And, you know, that's where the 27 year alcohol drinking career came in at. I couldn't feel those feelings. I couldn't feel that pain. And there sure wasn't anybody around trying to help me get through it. Yeah, right. You're listening to Our Best Interest. Now, Pamela, during this period, did you have any awareness that adoption was a, was integral in your issues? You know, you say that no one mentioned it as a therapist, but like you say, we didn't have the words for it. There weren't, there weren't books, there weren't resources, et cetera. Did you have a sense that, that adoption and the relinquishment had anything to do with your, you know, your drinking, any clue? Did you verbalize that at all or, or, or think that at all? I was experiencing this internal tug of war that was very significant coming out in other ways. But I, I consider it being brainwashed and being conditioned to be thankful and grateful from very early on. Like the minute I found out I lost my biological mother was the same minute in the same sentence. I find out that that loss was the most profound, amazing and wonderful thing for my adopted mother. So it created a, I mean, I can just describe it as putting tape over my mouth. Don't ever say a word on how you're really feeling. And I honestly know that I was feeling it inside, but I didn't feel like I'm acting out because of adoption. I didn't make those connections. I just knew that I was very, very, very deeply hurting. And everyone around me, the therapists, I mean, going to all these places like, you know, juvenile jail, having probation officers, um, being in uh, drug and alcohol rehab and group homes. There was like not a single person that is a trained professional can try to help me get to the bottom of it. I, but I very much internally was feeling the grief and the loss um, and the complex feelings of the house I was growing up in very much so, but it never once came out of my mouth. And I think a lot of it, this is one of the reasons that I write so much and everyone's like, oh, you're such a good writer. And I, I'm like, that's probably because the words don't come out of my mouth the way that they come out when I write, because I was conditioned from a very early age to be thankful and grateful and that I was a huge blessing and that really my feelings didn't matter. My feelings were this big compared to everyone else's that was happy in this narrative. So um, it's really weird to think about it, but that's kind of how I describe it as far as I know that I was feeling it inside. I know that every day of my life, I was crying for my birth mother inside and I couldn't get the words out that say that, but I did keep asking about her. I think what they saw was me keep asking about my birth mother. I never asked my adopted dad about her one time in my whole life because he just was not approachable like that. But I was haunting my adopted mother about it. Um, and I know she's like, God, this kid's never gonna shut up about finding her birth mother. 
that's what she saw. And then she saw separately. Everybody identified my acting out as separately. They never identified me acting out because I was hurting and in pain from the adoption period. Um, which is really weird. It's really weird. I think a lot of it has to do with kind of like some adoptees have said, and I agree with it, like Stockholm syndrome, where you're literally brainwashed. And it's taken me 47 years to be able to sit in front of people and see each other's faces and actually articulate these words in a way that people understand and not be angry, crying, you know, um, throwing things, hitting or kicking things, you know, um, but it's really, really strange. I think a lot of adoptees probably can say similar, but I, it's honestly a really weird question. I'm curious of what you guys say about that. I, I frame it very similar to what you just said. Um, the way I look at it is that, well, I wasn't the only a target of this, what you're calling a brainwashing. What it is, is, you know, on a societal level, um, it, it is an um, irrefutable narrative in that the narrative is never called a narrative, that uh, it is simply so, that this is adoption. It is beautiful. You're lucky. Um, you know, this is all in your best interest and you should be grateful. Um, you know, I mean, that, anything, that whole thing outside is, of that, anything outside of that is a demon is bad, yes. you know, and especially, I, I mean, I think a lot of times under the, you know, exactly what you say, the narrative, but there's the parental narrative. There's often the, the, the religious narrative, mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's God and the devil and, you know, God is telling the truth. The, the good and the people and is, bad people, worthy right, people and unworthy people. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, so you're with the good people. So clearly your your adoptive, your birth parents were the bad people. They couldn't even afford to have a baby, you know. Right. And for us, and it's not, you know, I mean, my family wasn't wealthy, you know. So, I mean, we were very, you know, middle to lower middle class. Um, so you immediately think that, well, if it weren't for this, I'd be at the soup kitchen every day, you know, because we're not wealthy by any means. You know, so if if my mother was worse than I mean, my family was fine. We had a close family, but yeah. um, we knew we weren't wealthy, you know, yet the other one was poor. My birth mother right. was too poor to have a baby. My, you know, they were a young couple that was poor. So they were like eating at the soup kitchen right now. So thank God that you have a good meal on your plate every day. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you should be thankful for that. But, yeah. you know, I, I think that the myth extends beyond us and, in, 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 you know, my birth, uh, my, excuse me, my adoptive parents also bought in, like Jack, you're, you're mentioning, it's maybe not the exact same myth, but they're certainly allied mythologies that allow the uh, adoptive parents to simply think of this as natural and that there's, there's, we're just picking up right from the beginning and there's, mm -hmm. there's no before here to concern ourselves with. Um, mm -hmm. You know, that's obviously a fiction. And, you know, that's a narrative that they're not questioning throughout their decades of parenting. And, right. and if like, if, if you don't follow with the narrative, well, then you're bad. You're the problem. You and need we to do live 
in a culture of personal responsibility being jammed down your throat constantly. Pamela, you, yeah. do you regret asking our opinion? <laughs> we'll just keep no, <laughs> I like I like hearing it um, just because I was curious because I was like, I've thought about that over the years, but I haven't really thought about it that deeply where I just feel like I'm pretty sure I never vocalized like instead of hit my fist on the table and say nothing. Why didn't I hit my fist on the table and say, I want to find my birth mother. I am really hurting that she's not here. I really want to meet her like in a more aggressive way. It was just very avoidant, but I was literally destroying. I love the way you say this though, that now for the first time you're in a place where you can discuss this without Mm -hmm. all that emotion that we can mm-hmm. talk about it as, you know, a thing in, in life as opposed to a thing that you're grappling with. Right. right. That's definitely, a, that's a healing thing for oh, sure. It's huge. Thank you. <laughs> I told, I told you, I, the first time I ever said the word birth mother in a small group setting was in 2012 and I had snot slanging from my nose and I was sobbing the biggest, hugest tears because it was the first time that I said something, one thing about my birth mother in front of other people. And it was that dramatic for me and emotional just to get the words out of my mouth, birth mother. And now that's how, you know, like healing transpires and sharing your story, because the more you share it, the more your tears start to dry up. You're listening to Our Best Interest. Were you able to see yourself you know, was your adoptive parents, you know, were they similar to you or um, did you feel like you were a complete outsider in this family? Uh, I definitely felt like a complete outsider. I didn't look like any of them. I didn't act like any of them. We were like oil and water for the most part. Um, I, I, I can reflect now on Teenage years. Teenage years for me is where all of this really internal negative um, self-reflection came from because I did look in the mirror and I didn't know who was looking back at me. And with that, I developed a really, really, really deep sense of self-hate that a lot of people cannot relate to. If I share this with people, like, I can't believe that you're talking about this. Well, it's the reality. Um, for me, I, this, this label of badness being bad was attached to me, like literally attached to me. And that is how I felt about myself. I didn't necessarily blame other people, um, for going through all of the things that I went through. Um, I didn't even know that that was actually the root of my pain. I just knew that I was in pain and I knew that was part of it. Um, The feelings of self-hate, I think really rooted in finding out that I was adopted, that my birth mother relinquished me and not being able to identify who I was or where I came from or find my people and looking at myself in the mirror, not knowing who the freak I was, like, who the hell are you? And I think it, it, I ended up, you know, I, I had that label of badness attached to me. You're a bad baby because your mother didn't want you. And the more I learned about that, I was conceived out of an affair with a married man. Well, you're bad. You're even more bad for that. Um, your adopted mother is never happy or healthy. 
She's never smiling. She's never productive. You're bad. You're bad because she would regularly try to commit suicide in front of you because you're being bad. Well, you're bad because you're stealing cars and you're in the street doing bad things, trying to find your birth mother. Um, you go to jail. Well, you're bad because you're going to jail. Um, I had the feelings of badness attached to me from the minute I was born, actually, probably before that, because I don't know how much research you guys have done on the primal wound, but then then before you were born, when you're in the mother's womb, your birth mother. Mojo. Yeah, your birth mother can reject the pregnancy while she's pregnant with you. And you feel every bit of that. And I feel like I felt every bit of that while I was in her belly, because I heard that she drank alcohol the whole pregnancy. And anybody asked me, when did you start drinking? Oh, when I was in my birth mother's stomach, because I drank alcohol every day for nine months when she was pregnant with me. And that they're like, oh, that's kind of scary. I'm like, yeah, it is. <laughs> but it's my truth. So, um, but the badness is something that has taken me a whole lifetime to shed. I ended up yeah, a, a, a school for bad kids. I ended up in alternative school. I didn't like regular school. I didn't like structure. I was too, um, I was just too wild for all of that. I was like, y'all ain't telling me what to do. <laughs> I always fit in better in the alternative schools where it was just go as slow as you want and da 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 da. Nobody's telling me what to do. And, <laughs> and um, it's just taken forever to, I've written an article that's titled She's Bad. Um, that talks about all of the cards that have been stacked up against me in the area of feeling bad and being bad and looking bad and trying to shed all of that and find beauty in the middle of it. And it's taken 47 years to get there, but I definitely can um, sympathize with people not being able to um, have a positive sense of self because they don't see anyone anywhere around them that looks like them or resembles them or have, you know, the genetic mirroring is very, very important. Um, but people that aren't adopted obviously do not, um, they don't even know, they don't, they can't even comprehend what that, why that means something when you are walking around every day, not looking like anyone. I remember, and you guys probably remember this, looking looking for a woman that had the same skin tone as me. Yeah. That's, the, that's where I was trying to find my birth mother. She had to have the same hair color as me and the skin tone. Um, and searching for that woman everywhere, you know, just because I was so desperately trying to find her. Um, because in finding her, I found part of myself, you know, so... Yeah, I think we all share in that. Yeah, um, I think that's universal. I think we all. Yeah, I mean, I, I wrote about it in, in my manuscript, you know, that, uh, you know, even at a young age, you know, while your parents are looking for shoes for you, you know, I'm looking at everyone else, finding someone who looks weird like me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that one person you feel that connection to that, that bond to, you know, and it's really weird. But when I did meet my birth mother that one time, it wasn't this warm fuzzy reunion she was really standoffish um i did learn she's an alcoholic so i don't think she had the capacity to feel either i don't think she had 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 gone through the whole healing process from the adoption experience and i think she drank every day of her life till she killed herself um with alcohol so 
me expecting some emotional reaction from her is definitely given me a different perspective on how alcohol limits people from feeling their feelings and processing their painful experiences. Maybe that's a good segue to get into your current work and what you're doing with authenticity over alcohol. Is this where it comes from? Does it come from your birth mother's well, partly it does come from my birth mother's um, side, but then I found my birth father and I found out he's a raging alcoholic and she has already passed away. She, they said she was never seen without a drink in her hand and she died drinking. Um, and she was only in her early sixties when she died. Um, and my birth father is literally right behind her. Um, he's, you know, but with him, he's, he's rage filled. Um, and I don't want to be anything like them. Like I, I found out she was an alcoholic in my twenties, but then I'm going to, you know, however many years later, I found him in 2010 to find out he is also an alcoholic. And I picked up the alcohol thing for 27 years. And these people didn't even raise me. I was not raised around alcohol. My adopted mom was addicted to pills. I wasn't, I didn't even have alcohol in the house. And I, the minute I turned 12 and drank my first drink of alcohol, it's almost like I was immediately on alcohol for 27 years because it's really weird when I think about it, but it's almost like my body already knew alcohol. Mm -hmm. But it did, right? You're yeah. genetically predisposed from the womb and, right. and generationally probably. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so knowing that it really kind of shocked me to my core. Um, I, I, you know, Aside from the adoption thing, when you're a drinker like that every day, the only time I didn't drink was my pregnancies. And um, I just couldn't sit with myself. I could not sit with my pain because I didn't know how to process the pain. I didn't know any tools. I decided I didn't want to die like them. And I wanted to be a better mom to my kids than what I had. Um, so in, in August, August 13th, which is actually my earthly birthday, is when I stopped drinking alcohol um, in 2012. Um, it is a day now. I mean, I'm sure that you guys can sympathize with how hard birthdays are. Um, I, I asked, I don't know, there's gotta be over a hundred comments on this one article I wrote one time and I actually didn't even write it. I asked adoptees to share how they feel about their birthdays and it's just got tons of adoptees commenting on how they feel about their birthdays. And it's really just a, a validation piece so that adoptees know they're not alone, but I always struggled with my birthday. And it, it's like, as soon as July gets here, I start having this gloom and doom of August is coming. Oh my God. I'm starting to just be sad. And, um, the closer it gets to the birthday, the sadder I get. And I would say the first probably five years of not drinking alcohol, it was really, really, really hard to get through birthdays and really anything. It was, it was hard to sit with myself and process feelings, but um, I knew that if I wanted to show my kids what a happy, healthy mom was, which is something I've never experienced in my life, that I had to take alcohol out of the equation and really get real and authentic with myself and learn how to process feelings and how to sit with myself and work through all this mess that I flipped a switch and it showed up at my front door and all these suitcases that were like 
piled high to the sky. <laughs> you got to so feel the feelings. Yeah. yeah. And that's what I've been doing for almost, well, nine and a half years now is, is, is sitting with the feelings and not trying to spiritually bypass them. I haven't been trying to pray them away. I'm actually really sitting with them um, and trying to process through them. And I, one of the biggest things for me is I never had anyone tell me that one of the biggest parts of my, my issues was grief. And grief is what has been visiting me so profoundly my whole entire life is grief of the loss of the mother bond, the mother, everything to do with the mother. Um, and so once I was able to identify that the grief component is a component that could very well, and I have accepted it's going to be here for the rest of my life because you can't put a time frame on healing grief. Um, the minute I invited the pain in from the grief to sit with me and stay is the minute that I started healing because I wasn't running a rat race trying to be healed right. or praying in Jesus name, heal me, which was actually avoiding me from dealing with the truth, not knocking anybody that's praying. I'm just yeah. saying that didn't work for me. Um, <laughs> so, you know, the word that I, you hear so much is the cognitive dissonance, you know, and, and I think that, you know, as you know, for me, writing the book was rewriting my story so that there was no cognitive dissonance, you know, so that my story fell in line with my inner subconscious harmony. And, you know, we've talked about this a number of times that, you know, after this, you, you know, I don't think it's a definitive, you know, in the fog, out of the fog kind of thing, but it's, it's, it's more out than in, let's say that way, you know, we're always, everybody's in some degree of fog, no matter who you are. But um, I think that, you know, whether it be therapy, whether it be God, whether it be whatever your method for bringing your narrative in tune with your feelings seems to be involved with that. You know, your outer brain is looking at things in a more, more harmonious way with your truth. Whereas before my truth is telling me this, or my, my brain is telling me this, but my soul and my heart is telling me something different, you know? And, you know, you can say it, say it, say it. Oh, oh yeah. I'm happy. I'm lucky. I'm blessed. Besides not knowing the truth with alcohol involved in the mix, it was impossible. Um, and I know that, and I speak from experience that I tried it. I tried for probably 2010 to 2012 um, to start working on trauma wounds. Um, I really didn't know what I was doing, but I was stepping into the space that I really want to work on these childhood wounds. And um, I hadn't let alcohol go yet. And it created a disaster. Um, where I was even worse off. I was suicidal um, and knew, I knew in the deepest parts of my being that in order to heal fully and get to all these areas, I had to put alcohol on the shelf. It's kind of like the old saying goes, in order to heal it, you have to feel it, you know, and sitting with it and welcoming it. Um, it's hard for adoptees to do that because we're, 
so conditioned from the beginning that those feelings are not welcome. Well, and nobody wants to hear it as we've they don't. discussed. And, the, and, and even therapists are lacking in the ability to help us identify and bring those out. That that's requires the recognition of this grief. Pamela, did you have a person, you know, you mentioned, you know, your children. I'm sorry, how many children do you have? I have three. Three. Um, mm-hmm. Was it your children? Was it a, a loved one? Was it a family member? It was Did you have anyone who helped you through this process? Uh, I don't recall a specific support person. I know um, we had started going to church when I first uh started to live the alcohol-free journey. And we had a community of church people that kind of gathered and surrounded us. And I ended up um, just morphing in to this church community and becoming this Christian person that um, for that time being, for that space of my life, was that person. Um, And so that was a support system, I guess, that I had for a couple of years, I think from 2012 to 2014, when we left the church because of another situation that was like a really hurtful family situation. And I really found myself between the time that I stopped drinking and finding the church in a very alone and isolating situation. I didn't have any friends that I walked away from all my friends. I had to walk away from every single person I knew, every place I used to visit and totally retire from all the people, places and things. And and even from childhood being in treatment at 15, I knew that that was part of, if I wanted to get happy and healthy, I had to walk away from everything. And at the time, I just said, if anybody's supposed to be in my life, I want them to circle back around organically in a way that's just um, authentic. And I have honestly found maybe three people circled back around. And I used to be the life of the party and have this big, huge group of friends. And when I changed my life, everything in it changed too, as far as leaving alcohol alone. So I've felt really, really alone and isolated um, for most of this nine and a half years of being alcohol free, because even leaving the church was almost like moving across the country away from all my family, just so I could start my life over and my kids could have a happier life than I did. And that was one of the hardest things I ever had to do. Because, you know, when you're adopted and you're surrounded by no one, you know, except for my kids, thankfully for them, but, you know, it very much impacts them too. You know, they're adults now and we're all we got, (laughs) literally. So, yeah, I just wonder if that's not a common thing um, amongst adoptees that since you really don't trust anyone that, you know, you do a lot of it on your own, which can be extremely difficult. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, I mean, I don't know if you, you seem to have done a lot of it on your own as well, Michael. Um, well, you know, your epiphany, you know, I, um, like Pamela, you know, I was not aware of my grief. I knew I was hurt, um, but right. What I call my great epiphany was on my would be deathbed, but you know, didn't happen. I didn't go through with the contract and um you know, it was that moment. That's all I needed was an understanding of my grief. And mm-hmm. uh, then then the work began. Then the putting the narrative together that made sense with my feelings and felt authentic and right and true and all of that happened. And, you know, I think I'm on the other side of that now and really happy about it. 
Let's get back to Pamela's organization, Authenticity Over Alcohol. Pamela, tell us what's the vision? So Authenticity Over Alcohol is basically a vision um, and a mission to create a space where anyone that might be struggling with alcohol can find resources. Um, Based on my own personal journey, um, it's really, really been difficult to not have options or resources available um, or to have society at large to expect the one size to fit all when it comes to mainstream um, recovery programs, um, ministries, whatever you want to call them that's out there. And um, I don't, I started learning that there are other options out there. Some things that are like scientifically based, some things that are like, wow, how about we get to the root? How about we talk about the trauma? And how about, um, all these different ways that people are um, learning now. And I wanted to create a platform that actually has everything listed for people. Um, But can you give us some examples of some of those uh, resources that are available now that maybe you and I didn't have when we were struggling? So Uh, this naked mind, I don't know if you've heard of this. You have to have heard of this. I have not. No, Um, this is probably, you do. Jack, I have not. Have no. no. Okay. Well, find freedom, discover happiness, and change your life. This basically is a book that um, has saved the life of a lot of people without ever having to attach the whole once you're an alcoholic, you're always an alcoholic label, ball and chain for the rest of your life. Um, she actually approaches things scientifically and she focuses a lot more on what your life will be like future without alcohol versus the ball and chain of you're an alcoholic and you're going to be an alcoholic for the rest of your life, which actually fits my narrative Mm -hmm. and a lot of other people's narrative a lot more happily than being scared straight into a program that actually I feel can be pretty damaging to people. I'm not saying it doesn't work for a lot of people and I'm not going to say any names, but there's a lot of different things out there that um, can really cause harm. So this naked mind is one of them. Um, there's quite, there's a whole section on there that's called Quitlit and it's quit drinking literature. Okay. Um, there's like 20 books on there. One of them is David Bowles book. Apparent to me that there is, there's this disconnect between um, healing and adoptees still drinking alcohol or using drugs, but they, you know, I know that a lot of them want to heal and I've had them reach out to me and I've shared when they seek me out and they ask me the number one thing that I've done is I have stopped drinking alcohol because I had to get honest with myself and alcohol was actually creating more problems than what it was helping me. So, um, that's another reason is that I created the authenticity over alcohol so that we can focus more on being authentic in our lives and walk our true genuine purpose out. And let's just be honest, if you drink alcohol every day or you drink it all the time, you're not operating from your true sense of self. It actually distorts it. Let's get honest about alcohol. And so it's a platform for people to get honest about their relationship with alcohol. Even some people can can be a part of it that maybe just want to modify their relationship with alcohol. Not everybody has the problem that I had. Right. Um, and they, I'm learning. There's like people out there that are just drinkers for the fun of it. <laughs> Imagine and, that. <laughs> I know. And they're like, oh, I'm, I really am a social drinker. And I'm like, well, okay, if that works for you. Like, like so everybody doesn't have the big problem with it, you know? Um, but this platform was specifically created um, 
for anyone that wants to evaluate their relationship with alcohol and really maybe get vocal about it, share their story on the platform, talk about it, let's start having conversations about it. Um, and then it's also to remove some of the stigma that's attached to recovery, um, right. sobriety, alcoholism, you're an alcoholic, um, all of these labels that are attached to people for the rest of their life. What if we take all the labels and we set them on the shelf and walk in a space where we're free to fly our wings and really figure out who we are without the labels? Yeah. Um, because I think labels don't always help people. But we're not always the best at allowing people to evolve and change. Right. And so I, what I yeah. like about this approach is that it's looking after, at life after the uh, mm-hmm. You know, well, the, I guess the problematic relationship is over. It doesn't have to be a relationship break entirely. Right? As you're saying, you could right. have alcohol situated in your life in a in a way that you can maintain authenticity. And that's the goal is right. to be real. Right. And when we spoke, Pamela, I I was, you know, I'm not necessarily attuned to the, the language of um alcoholism and substance abuse. But as soon as I asked you, I said, so are you recovering? And you just slapped me back in the face and said, no, I'm recovered. And I'm like, okay, I thought you couldn't be recovered. I thought you were always recovering really. you know, from that, from that mindset. And you were like, no shit, I'm recovered. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I'm like, I instantly believe I, I didn't have to believe you. I believed you. <laughs> you know, you said it with, once again, such authenticity that there was no question about it. And, we, you know, we talked a little bit about, you know, this, you know, running from your demons sort of thing. And, you know, we use the analogy of, you know, if you just stop and look back at your demon, you realize that it's not so scary. This thing you've been running from your whole life, you know, like, oh, alcohol, I'm running from alcohol. I'm, you know, I'm always just coming to alcohol. And you just turned around and looked at it and says, nope, I'm done. I'm recovered. You are no longer the threat to me. Like you, you completely neutralized it. And I, and I love that about, about that conversation. (laughs) Yes. You know, that's interesting because that was a really powerful moment for me to say it. Like, I don't have that type of conversation with that many people. I work with elderly people for a living and then I'm around my kids and the few friends I have that I'm close to now, most of them don't drink. So it's not really a conversation, but I feel very strongly about it. I write about it sometimes and I'm getting more vocal about it. But, you know, the last few days since we had that conversation, something else has come to my mind that I really would love to touch on with this um, and how significantly important that I think that it is, is that a lot of the the programs that are out there now convince you that you are going to be in recovery for the rest of your life. Five years ago, I would have told you I am going to be in, I did tell you I was going to be in recovery for the rest of my life. Um, but the more I learned about the, the resources from today, not 40, 50, 60 years ago, resources, hundred years ago, however many, um, the more I learned that I don't have to attach the word recovery to myself for the rest of my life. That's actually one of those things that we're conditioned to believe. I was definitely conditioned to believe when I first got into my recovery journey that I was going to be in recovery forever. Um, Something that has recently flipped on like a light bulb, probably the last two years, um, is me working the 12 steps, like, I don't know, eight times, um, and what that process looked like for me. when. 
I'm fighting the world for my truth for 47 years from adoption. And then I step into the space of recovery. That takes up a lot of your time. That takes a lot of your time up from your fan, your friends and your children and the people that you love. And it takes a lot of time from experiencing true, authentic happiness that has nothing to do with all this bullshit. Um, and I woke up and I was like, oh my God, how many times am I going to work the 12 steps? If they say it, you're going to work them until you die over and over and over. And if you stop, you're going to die and you're going to stay in this forever because once you're done with yourself, you're going to stay helping other people forever. It's like the ball and chain. And I, I felt like I was going around on this merry-go-round and like year after years passing me by. And probably last year, I'm like, I woke up and I was like, I have sat just literally so deep in all the adoptee crap and processed through every little piece of it for almost 10 years now that I don't have the emotional reactions I always have and the trauma that I've always been triggered by and dealt with deep down are things that I feel like I've worked on. It doesn't feel like there's another side. You know, it feels like this is going to be a burden for the rest of my freaking life. Mm -hmm. But like alcohol, I I would argue, you can get over it. Mm -hmm. Now, it's it's still a part of your personality and all of these manifestations are going to be a part of you. But if you have reworked your, you know, not to beat this to death, but reworked the narrative about Mm -hmm. adoption, um, you know, you can not be in recovery from adoption. Mm -hmm. You could be recovered. Yeah. Right. I feel like that the 12 step programs have helped a lot of people. There's no denying that they have helped a lot of people. They've stepped in the gap to fill a space that needs to be filled. And I think that they have saved a lot of people's lives for who they work for. But the reality is, is they don't work for everyone. Um, And I think when I share my voice about it is that number one, I never felt comfortable labeling myself the alcoholic in those spaces. I had to raise my hand and say, I'm Pam and I'm the alcoholic. And if I didn't, I couldn't open my mouth and share. So if I can't open my mouth and share, what good is this group going to do me? Because I am too stubborn and I'm never going to tell you that I'm alcoholic because I knew deep down that it was much deeper than that. I knew it was root issues as to why I was drinking and not feeling pain. Nobody in any of those rooms I ever went to was ever talking about those type of things. If I was to open my mouth and start talking about my birth mother, they would laugh at me. Not a welcoming space for me. Um, not being adopted. And that's part of how Adoptees Connect came about. But um, one of the other things that really, really hit me about the 12 steps is being forced to admit that I'm powerless. And I never felt like I was powerless. Um, But I said it, uh, it's part of the steps, you have to say it, like that's part of it. And, and honestly, the most healing that I've ever gotten in my whole entire life is the minute that I walked away from church and religion, and any kind of program um, or community that told me how I had to do things. Um, The minute that I started healing the most is when I walked off into the sunset all by myself. And I started tuning into my body and my spirit, asking myself, what do you want to do today? How does your recovery look for you? Um, Let's work on your self-love and tuning into yourself. And how about you say the word every single day when you wake up that you are fucking powerful 
you are fucking powerful and you have all the power to do all the shit that you want to do in this life instead of rehearsing that I'm powerless. Like that is abusive to me. I don't know how other people in recovery feel, um, but I feel like I owe more to my children than them having a mother that's always wrapped up in fixing herself. When in the fuck are you going to be fixed? Like I could go on and soak up all my time forever, continuing these steps and continuing these meetings and continuing and continuing. My life is over. Like I could have used all that time spending with my kids. If I'm putting in all this work and I feel good when I wake up and I feel happy internally, not just putting on a show like I did most of my life for the world. Oh, you smile, your smile's so pretty. And I'm like, yes, trust me. It's just on the outside. Like I would literally just be so fake about it because I didn't know what else to do. People didn't want to hear my pain. They just didn't want to hear it. Even in the church you know, you were forced to put on a smile and keep going. And if you were having problems and you weren't praying enough or you weren't fasting enough or you were doing something completely wrong. And I got tired of the rat race. I got tired of trying to be healed because of all these things. And um, I decided I wanted to be healed. I just, I feel like I'm healed and I feel like I'm recovered and I do still have healing to do. I do have grief that is going to impact me forever, but um I'm just in a more well-rounded, happy place. And anytime I can have the opportunity to share that people have resources, you do not have to label yourself an alcoholic. Um, and there really is happiness and hope in your future. Um, I don't think I could have done all of that if I didn't have my adoptee truth. Um, I think it's all been just a very staged process. But now when I wake up, I don't, I, I invest time into these type of interactions um, because I think that they're important for the adoptee community or even people in the alcohol arena that feel like they're stuck or they don't have um, any way out. Or I've had so many people reach out to me recently that um, are like, I want to quit drinking, but I don't know what to do. Like, can you just point me in the right direction? And it's an opportunity to share um, that there's a lot of options for you out there now. And you don't have to just, you know, the 12 steps might work for some people and other people, maybe they don't. It's nice to put everything on the table and let people try different things that maybe work for them. And then they can figure it out for themselves. Pamela, your story is inspiring. Your work with the adoptee community and for the adoptee community through Adoptees Connect has been a lifesaver. And I'm sure you will do good things with authenticity over alcohol. What is the web page where people can find you? It's authenticityoveralcohol.com. Right, and you're also on Facebook and Instagram. I'd like to thank Pamela Caranova for her generosity and leadership. Thank you, Pamela. This is Our Best Interests.